Good evening, I'm Ken Bastida. Dana is off tonight. He was murdered and then set on fire while celebrating his birthday. <laughs> I, I've gotten nothing, nothing. A friend of mine sent me that. I was like, holy cow, I'm going to fire up my show. <laughs> Some guy for CBS 5 and... Uh, I have no idea what station this is, but he starts the newscast. Good evening. Uh, So-and-so is off today. He was murdered and set on fire at his birthday. Uh, the guy wasn't actually murdered and set on fire at his birthday, but that's the way this guy, this fill-in anchor, started the newscast. Wow. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here as I discombobulate you this Friday morning, March 6. It is 7, 8 after the hour now. The phone number here, if you want to call in, 877-97-ERIC, 877-97. 7973 uh, I need to go over to the WRGA website right now. WRGA, our affiliate up in Rome, uh, they have this news release up right now, late evening. Uh, the Floyd County, I guess it's Floyd Medical Center up in Rome, received notification from Georgia Department of Public Health that a patient in our hospital has preliminarily tested positive for COVID-19. A 46-year-old female presented to Floyd's Emergency Care Center with flu-like symptoms on the afternoon of Saturday, February 29th. The patient was screened according to the CDC and Georgia Department of Public Health screening guidelines and was treated and released. She did not meet the testing criteria for COVID-19 or warrant hospitalization. The patient returned to the emergency care center on Tuesday with worsening symptoms. Further tests were completed. Uh, Department of Public Health notified, subsequently authorized her release despite the patient again not meeting COVID-19 screening criteria, Floyd clinicians made the determination to admit her to the hospital due to her condition. The patient was placed in isolation and further screening was conducted at the adamant urging of the attending physician and district director, health director, Dr. Gary Vocio. CDC and Georgia Department of Public Health authorized the test. The preliminary test was positive. Additional confirmatory testing is being performed, and the results from CDC are anticipated in the coming days. So the CDC, uh, their screening guidelines, this woman didn't meet them. Looks like she may have had it. They sent her home, and then they put her in the hospital. Um, you've got to give credit uh, up there to the hospital in Rome. I mean, it really is uh, these local. He, he, by the way, if everyone in in the world were as competent as the people in Georgia when it comes to dealing with this issue, we wouldn't be having the problems uh, that so many other places are having. I mean, we had the guy from Atlanta who came home, and uh, they um, he thought he may have it because he was in Milan, and he came home and kept himself away from everybody other than his family who lived with him. His son wound up getting it. Uh, and, and now we've got the Floyd Medical Center, and the Floyd Medical Center is like, no, we're pretty sure she may have it, even though she didn't meet the criteria. And, and the Floyd Medical Center and the folks in Floyd County uh, demanded that she be tested and, and forced the hand of the federal government. Good for them. Um, really, the, the district health director there, and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing his name, Gary Vocchio, um, insisted that she be tested. Uh, and preliminarily tested positive. Now, Governor Kemp last night said we had no new spread in Georgia. This may change that to the third person in Georgia. If this lady has it, uh, we'll we'll figure out um, exactly what's going on. Um, but yeah, this is now starting to break statewide. We'll we'll continue to keep our eye on the situation this morning. 
as it shapes up. The president was headed to the CDC in Atlanta and decided to redirect to see the tornado damage in Nashville instead. And now the president just a couple of minutes ago was asked and, and said, or he might have actually tweeted it out, that there was a rumor someone possibly had gotten, um, someone had possibly gotten um, the coronavirus at the CDC, and it turned out to be a false alarm, but they didn't want the president there if that was the case. Uh, the Seattle mayor, by the way, is is now on television, and she's saying that one way to prevent the virus, I love this, is social distancing. Uh, we'll get more into the virus later. I don't really want to dwell on it right now, but there is this one funny story. Uh, Charlie, uh, my producer, flagged for me last night, and, and I had to look at it twice and and see if this was legit. And it, it's a parody account, but you know, I know, and he knows that this is undoubtedly going to be the situation. This is a Gavin Newsom. Gavin Newsom is the left-wing mayor of Cal or left wing. He was the left-wing mayor of San Francisco. Now he's the left-wing governor of California. He was for a, a time married to, to Kimberly Guilfoyle on Fox. They wound up getting a divorce. She moved to New York, uh, and he's gone just hardcore leftist. And so there's a press parody account. And it says, today I visited California's unhomed residence to encourage proper hand-washing techniques. The governor's office will distribute 178,000 Your Number 2 is My Number 1 t-shirts to vulnerable Californians to remind them that hand-washing prevents the spread of COVID-19. Now listen, it's a parody account. You know and I know uh, this is going to happen in California. It is only a matter of time. Uh, unhomed residents. Hey, you know, I saw that. I was like, unhomed residents. This can't be a parody. This is what California would do. Nope, nope, nope. One, one more local thing to be advised up here before I move on. The governor of Georgia has declared a state of emergency for every county south of I-20. Now, listen, I was up in Athens the other day, and it's it's not that far north of I-20. Uh, I don't know what the situation is up in North Georgia. I haven't been up there in several weeks. Uh, but here in, in middle Georgia, where I am, it, everything is flooded. Uh, we, I actually, I'm looking outside right now, and the clouds, it, it's very bright outside, and the clouds are very blue. Um, surely it's going to rain here soon. No, it's actually, it's nice to see clear skies, and we're supposed to have them until Wednesday before the rain comes back. It's really nice to have clear skies in Georgia. For those of you who are listening who aren't in Georgia, I'm, I'm sorry, but we have not seen the sky in about a week, and my wife is beside herself. She wants to get on her motorcycle so bad, uh, and she can't now because the roads are still so wet, and it's cold and she she won't ride when it's cold she's got lung cancer she don't want to ride when it's cold and she's not going to ride when it's raining and we've either had cold or we've had rain it's supposed to be okay this weekend the fall there are a bunch of roads in middle georgia that have washed out uh to give you a sense of this uh, i've got this uh wgxa website that's fox 24 in in uh macon uh crisp county dodge county dooley county johnson county lawrence county irwin county monroe county tombs county wilcox county sumter county all of them have roads that are washing out and some of them are significant roads bridges are washed away and, and the like. it is a mess the rivers have risen so much um in uh, wilcox county highway 112 south uh, the road's just gone the bridge is washed away it's uh, the pictures out there are staggering uh the way that some of these roads are being wiped out because of all the flooding i when i went up to athens 
on Wednesday to talk to the college Republicans. We went up uh, from you go up Highway 23, uh, past Juliet. You you turn, you go through Monticello, and what is it, the Tawaliga River? I think it is that goes through there. And the river was up to the road. You couldn't really see where the road ended and the river began. It was it was bad. And driving back after midnight, uh, it was foggy. There were deer everywhere. It was it was an unpleasant drive home. I'm glad Philip was with me. I, I'm uh, who runs my my web properties for me because it was it was a a miserable uh, ride with the deer, the fog, and the rain and the water like that. So please be careful out on the roads. There is a state of emergency for every county south of I-20. The reason the governor's doing this is to get these counties, um, more available federal emergency management funds to help them deal with these roads that are washing away out there. Now let's get into, uh, more of the news of the day. And I gotta, I, I, I want to begin here with Rachel Maddow's conversation with Elizabeth Warren as Elizabeth Warren leaves and the number of people screaming about sexism is on the rise because Elizabeth Warren, the preferred candidate of so many people in the media, she's now gone. And Rachel Maddow did have a conversation with Elizabeth Warren last night about her campaign ending. Here's what they said. You can't win when she gets the nomination and then you can't get the nomination and neither can Kamala Harris and neither can Amy Klobuchar and neither can Kirsten Gillibrand. I mean, I think part of what's going on today is that women around the country are like, okay, honestly, you know, if it's not, if it's not going to be any of them, let's get real. Is it just, is it just that it can't be any woman ever? Are we just going to run, you know, white men in their late seventies against each other, both parties. And that's all we can agree to do. I think there's a, there's a feeling that your campaign ending is, is, is very specific to you. And it also feels a little bit like a death knell in terms of the prospects of having a woman for president in our lifetimes. Oh God, please no, that can't be right. You I know mean, what I'm talking about. I know exactly what you're talking about. I know exactly what you're talking about. This cannot be the right answer. It can't be the right answer. No, no more women in politics. We're never going to have a female president in our lifetime. And then there's Kamala Harris taking up the ball as well. Um, I spent a lot of time with her on the campaign trail as we were running for president. And um, I think she is an incredible leader. Um, and, and I have nothing but praise for her. Um, she's a friend. I will also say, guys, that... It is, I think, that, that we all know, and this election cycle in particular, has also presented very legitimate questions about the challenges of women running for president of the United States. Why do you say that? Well, it's obvious. Just look at what's happened. Look at what's happened. There are no women currently in this race. You know, I got to tell you, that wasn't about the women being in the race. It was about the women running terrible campaigns. Uh, this is such a chicken and egg nonsensical thing. There, there's this article out here. Let, let me read you the, the whining from The Atlantic. America punished Elizabeth Warren for her competence. The country still doesn't know what to make of a woman in politics and beyond who refuses to qualify her success and won't make sandwiches. I made that last part up just to annoy all the right people. In November 2019, as the Democratic presidential candidates prepared for the primaries that had been taking place unofficially for more than a year and that would begin in earnest in February, 538's Claire Malone profiled Pete Buttigieg, 
In the process, Malone spoke with two women and a Buttigieg event in New Hampshire. One liked Joe Biden but felt he was too old for the presidency. The other liked Buttigieg without qualification. I feel like he's well-positioned, she explained. The country is ready for a more gentle approach. As for Elizabeth Warren, when I hear her talk, I want to slap her, even when I agree with her. A version of that sentiment, women inspiring irrational animus among those with whom she sought as constituents, was a common refrain about the candidate, who announced today that she was suspending her campaign after a poor showing on Super Tuesday. That complaint tends to take on not the substance of Warren's stated positions, but instead the style with which she delivered them. And it has been expressed by pundits as well as voters. Politico in September ran an article featuring quotes from Obama administration officials calling Warren sanctimonious and a narcissist. The Boston Herald ran a story criticizing Warren's self-righteous, abrasive style. The New York Times columnist Brett Stevens in October described Warren as intensely alienating and a know-it-all. Donnie Deutsch, the MSNBC commentator, had dismissed Warren, the person and the candidate, as unlikable and had attributed her failure to to ingratiate herself to him as a result, specifically of her high school principal demeanor. This is not a gender thing, Deutsch insisted, perhaps recognizing this complaint might be read as a gender thing. This is just a kind of tone and manner thing. Can I reread you this paragraph real quick in a different way? Let, let Let me read you this in a different way. As for Mike Bloomberg... When I hear him talk, I want to punch him, even when I agree with him. A version of that sentence, Bloomberg inspiring irrational animus among those whom he has sought as constituents, was a common refrain about the candidate, who announced today that he is suspending his campaign after a poor showing on Super Tuesday. This complaint tends to take on not the substance of Bloomberg's stated positions, but instead the style with which he delivered them. And it has been expressed by pundits as well as voters. Politico in September ran an article featuring quotes from Obama administration officials calling Bloomberg sanctimonious and a narcissist. The Boston Herald ran a story criticizing Bloomberg's self-righteous, abrasive style. The New York Times columnist Brett Stevens in October described Bloomberg as intensely alienating and a know-it-all. Donnie Deutsch, the MSNBC commentator, has dismissed Bloomberg, the person and the candidate, as unlikable. I said the exact same criticisms about Bloomberg as about Warren, but no one's calling me or anyone else sexist for pointing out that Bloomberg was a narcissist and unlikable and it was all gross. His entire campaign was gross. They spent a bunch of money on advertisements, but they couldn't actually perform on the campaign trail because every time the guy opened his mouth, you realize he was a jerk. I started to say the the a-hole word and caught myself. I'm live on radio. I can't say that. But you know what I mean. He came across that way. He did. So did Elizabeth Warren. And the fact that people will look at the one and not the other and say that one's sexist and this one's not. Well, now suddenly it's sexist. Oh, but wait, 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 wait. There's more on this. Trust me. There's a survey out that's going to, particularly if you believe this whole sexism nonsense, there's a survey that's out and it's going to blow your mind. Yes, you can be on live. Then again, the phone number 877-973-7425. It it really does. This sexism argument bothers me a lot because so much of the data shows it's not really sexism. Uh, And by the way, it it highlights the, the differences between men and women. Except men and women have something overwhelmingly in common. This is from The Guardian. This is a survey. 
Almost 90% of people are biased against women, according to a new index that highlights the shocking extent of the global backlash towards gender equality. Meditate on this for a moment. Let me read you again the very first phrase before the comma. Almost 90% of people are biased against women. Hmm, 90% of people, not men, people. That's right. Almost 90% of people, in other words, men and women are apparently biased against women. Despite progress, and I'm reading from this article, despite progress in closing the equality gap, 91% of men and 86% of women hold at least one bias against women in relation to politics, economics, education, violence, or reproductive rights. The first gender social norm index come analyzed data from 75 countries that collectively are home to more than 80% of the global population. It found that half of people feel men are superior political leaders and more than 40% believe men make better business executives. Almost a third of men and women think it's acceptable for a man to beat his wife. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't laugh at that, but what? That one caught me off guard. Hey, at least it's a minority. Only a third of people on the planet think it's acceptable. Good Lord. They must have gone into some bizarre countries. Um, who on earth would think that was acceptable? Nonetheless, the UN Development Program, which published its findings on Thursday, is calling on governments to introduce legislation that address ingrained prejudice. We all know we live in a male-dominated world, but with this report, we were able to put some numbers behind the biases, and the numbers, I consider them shocking. What our report shows is a pattern that repeats itself again and again. Big progress in more basic areas of participation and empowerment, but when we get to more empowering areas, we seem to be hitting a wall. The figures are based on two sets of data collected from almost 100 countries through the World Value Survey, which examines changing attitudes in almost 100 countries and how they impact on social and political life. The figures cover periods from 2005 to 2009 and 2010 to 2014, the latest year for which there's data. Of the 75 countries studied, there were only six in which a majority of people held no bias towards women. But while more than 50% of people in Andorra, Australia, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Norway, and Sweden were free from gender prejudice, even here the pattern was not one of unmitigated progress. Sweden, for example, was one of several countries in which the percentage of people who held at least one bias increased over the nine years. More than half the people in the UK and the US held at least one bias. Good grief. Um, by the way, you should know, and I think this is important, that this is a, a garbage survey, uh, the, the way they're going about it. But what, what does it tell us? What does it tell us? That that you've got men and women, roughly 90% of men and 90% of women have views on women 
that the political elite consider sexist. If 90% of women have a view and the political elite, elite consider that view sexist, isn't that the political elite who are sexist when 90% of women say otherwise and the political elite tell them they're wrong? I guess that's kind of sexism. This is where all of this stuff leads. Madness. I have made an executive decision. What was I going to talk about right now? I was going to talk about the Star Wars controversy, the state of emergency south of I-20, and the Bernie Sanders, Sanders oppo research in Hunter Biden. I, I've decided to go off on, on a wild hair here, and you're just going to have to go along with me because there's no other radio station. Uh, you're, you're stuck with me. So let's go off on this wild tangent together. Thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, the Greeks decided that the sun moving across the sky was because of the sun god, Apollo, that he was in a golden chariot and would ride his horses across the sky. And that's why the sun seemed to move across the sky. The Egyptians had this cosmogony. Uh, the cosmogony is the theory of the creation of the cosmos. You know, it just a uh, random aside, th this is why um, one of the reasons that I, I think the whole Bible thing, uh, the Judeo-Christian Judeo tradition is real, is because when you have Moses writing, and in fact, let me, let, let me get here. Um, when you have Moses writing, and I've done a sermon on this, actually, the very first sermon I ever preached was on Genesis 1, and, and I go into this room, and it's filled with like 5,000 people are at this conference, and they ask the political people to talk on religion and the religious people to talk on politics, and they ask me to preach the Sunday sermon. Uh, and so I get up, and I, I'm, I'm in seminary, and you know, I went to seminary because people were asking me to, to preach on Sundays. And uh, I felt really weird never having preached before, never having gone to seminary. So I went to seminary and uh, because people kept asking me to preach, and then they found out I was going to reform seminary. They're like, eh, no, maybe not. So I finally, my very first opportunity to preach was at a conference in Colorado. They asked me to preach on Sunday morning, and they asked me to preach on Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That was my sermon. And I had a 30, they gave me 30 minutes. I really, I, I could have done it in 20, but I, I spread my time out. And I got up there and I got to the pulpit, got 5,000 people in front of me. It's my first time to preach. And who should sit down, right? And you know, the way the spotlights work, you can't see out into the crowd. That's why everybody says, oh, you must be an extrovert. You like large parts. No, I am a total introvert. I, I, I am here talking to hundreds of thousands of people right now on the radio, and I see nothing but the four walls of my office. I can talk. I'm essentially talking to myself. Uh, and when I'm talking to a large crowd, the spotlight's on me, and I can't actually see the people. You can see about the front row. And there aren't a lot of people in the front row because they're all Baptists who come to these things and they all sit in the back and they leave the front row for the visitors. Well, who should come sit right down? I mean, in front of me, my, I'm those of you watching on uh, live on, on social media, I got the pulpit here. I got my, my sermon in front of me and just down from the pulpit, I can look down and see the first row and the reserved seats and who should sit down right, I mean, my eye to his eye, John MacArthur. I had my John MacArthur study Bible with me on stage. 
I kid you not, my 30-minute sermon on Genesis 1-1 was about eight minutes long. Now, MacArthur and I have a mutual friend. In fact, our mutual friend is one of my professors in seminary, and I introduced myself to I had introduced myself to MacArthur earlier. I, I knew he was going to be there. He just wasn't supposed to be there in front of me. He was in the back visiting. No, he came and listened. And so he texted a friend of mine, my seminary professor, who were who he's friends with, and he said, hey, "Your boy did a great job, but he spoke too fast." <laughs> I wanted to be off that stage as quick as I possibly could. Anyway, I digress from story time. So let, let me just say, this is this is not sermon series, I promise. I'm not going to preach the sermon. There's a point to be made here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. Da, 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 da. You, you've, you've heard all of this. And, and then where, where do we get? Where do we get? Where do we get? Um Yes, we get all the way down to, and then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And so it was, and God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. That That's the relevant point here. Now, what on earth is my point? Where am I going with this. Bear with me, people. We're going to go down the road. So if you are a Jewish or Christian or Muslim, you believe, I mean, basically 5 billion people on planet Earth believe Moses wrote this. Now, there are academic scholars of biblical criticism who say, no, this came much later, except we now know from just really the last 10 years from archaeological data, uh, going back to the kingdom of Israel before the exile, that they had Genesis uh, before the exile. There, there's this prevailing theory in academia that really has been upended in the last ten years. That really you didn't get the, uh, the you didn't get the Pentateuch, uh, the the Torah. You didn't get the first five books of the Bible until you got off into the exile, and and people started writing these things, and they attributed it to Moses. No, we actually know now from archaeological evidence, really confirmed in the last ten years, not found but confirmed, uh, that the the Jewish people before the exile had Genesis. And even then they attributed it to Moses. And what makes this so profound here, again, is verse 14 of Genesis 1. Uh, Let the lights in the expanse of the heavens separate the day from the night. And God made the two great lights, the, the, the greater light for the day, the lesser light to rule the night, and, and the stars. And just this throwaway line, he made the stars. What, what makes this so impressive is that Moses was a prince of Egypt who is writing a cosmogony, a theory for the creation of the universe. Do you know, fast forward to the 1930s, it was a Catholic priest who came up with the Big Bang Theory. And even Albert Einstein rejected the theory because Albert Einstein argued it was a Catholic priest trying to just, who was also a brilliant physicist, you should know, but he was, uh, Albert Einstein and other all the other leading scientists of the day said, this guy's just trying to justify, let there be light. And he, he's trying to justify Genesis 1, and he's come up with the theory. Well, now it is totally accepted. But as late as the early 1940s in the outbreak of World War II, the leading scientists on planet Earth, from Robert Oppenheimer to, to Albert Einstein, like they rejected the idea of the Big Bang because they thought it was just some Christian trying to justify Genesis 1. Well, here comes Moses thousands of years ago. And he's bringing a cosmogony, a theory of the creation of the universe. And what did the Egyptians believe? I don't want to be vulgar here, but 
the prevailing five to 6,000 years ago, prevailing uh, based on archaeological research and the hieroglyphics and the papyri we found, the prevailing Egyptian theory of cosmology is that in the beginning there was a, a an Egyptian god. Uh, you can say it was Ra or, or whoever, Horus or whoever you want to say. It, it varies over, over the scrolls. But there was the, the Egyptian leading god, and he because I don't really want to use the word on radio in the nine o'clock hour, he self-pleasured himself. And what he released became gods. Yeah, his little swimmers all became gods, and those gods are the stars in the sky. And and he is the sun god, and then there was a moon goddess, and and these are the these objects in the sky, they're all gods and goddesses. When you see the lights at night and you look up, that's how expansive the gods of heaven are. Now you live in a city somewhere, you've got city lights, you can no longer see unless you get out on a ship and it turns off its lights in the middle of the ocean. You can't see how people five thousand years, two thousand years ago, a thousand years ago saw the heavens. You can't up until the invention of electricity at night, cities were largely dark. And so they could look up and they could see a sky filled with innumerable stars and they were all gods. They had been released uh, through the self-pleasuring act of of the sun god and and that's what it was. And and that was a prevailing view. And you circle the world at that time and, and go to prevailing literatures, whether it's the Greeks or the Romans or the Egyptians or the Babylonians or, or the ancient Sumerians or, or go further in, into the uh, Indus and, and go to India and, and find the early religions and the mythologies and going back to Gilgamesh. What you have is this prevailing view that the stars in the skies were all gods and goddesses. There was a sun god. There was a moon goddess. All of these things. And here comes Moses, a prince of Egypt, who was raised in that cosmogony, who says, no, these are objects in the sky. There is a God. He is not the sun. He is not represented by the sun. His wife is not represented by the moon. He has no wife. He is an eternal creature. He said, let there be light. And he put these things in the sky. These are objects. They're not gods. They are not objects of worship. They are not meant to be worshiped. And it deviates. And this is why it's so impressive. And, and why, as someone, I look at this stuff and say, yes, this is real and this is true. When you go to every religion, that originated before and after Judeo-Christianity up until uh, the, the actual planting of Christianity as the dominant religion on the planet. Every other religion on planet Earth, from the Norse to the Greeks to the Romans to the Egyptians to the Hindu to, to um, the, the Zoroastrians to the, the ancient Sumerians to the, the various cult religions in, in Southeast Asia that sprung up, all of them have plenary gods. To the Aztec, to the Maya, they have a plenary gods and the stars and the sun and the moon, they're all gods. And here comes this guy and says, no, they're not. They're objects in the sky. There is a God, uh, but that's not the God. He just, he created those things. TV deviates from every religion on the planet prior to that came about before and after uh, Judaism and then into Christianity. It, it, it was a profound thing and it stood out as unique. This one religion on earth that believed there was actually only one God and he created these things. It was distinct. And by the way, it turned out to be true. They aren't gods, but every religion comes up with mythologies uh, or every people come up with a mythology and there will be atheists who say, well, Christianity is a mythology as well. I believe it is true religion, uh, and I realize others disagree, uh, but we can all look back at these ancient religions that that were coming up around the time where you've got the sun gods and the moon gods, and you've got the river nymphs, and you've got the forest nymphs, and the mountain nymphs, and the ocean nymphs, and the ocean god, and, and everything had a divine ex- 
explanation where, yes, God is in control, but there was actually the wind was a God. The grass was a God. Everything was a God. People as a whole, and this actually, believe me, gets to my point here. People as a whole develop mythologies to explain the world. Even Christians develop mythology along the way. I mean, you, you, you read the, the legends of old and, and uh, Christians develop mythologies within Christianity. And there were, there are plenty of Christians, Protestant Christians in particular, not Catholics who say, yeah, you know, the reason that Ireland doesn't have snakes is because it was always a Northern Atlantic Island, too cold for cold blooded creatures and had separated itself from the, the uh, continental Europe. It always was an Island. It was never connected to Europe. So snakes could not get onto the Island. And it was under the, the Arctic ice for so long prior to the last ice age, anything that had been there was killed. And that's why, and, and nope, it, it was, it was uh, St. Patrick who chased the snakes off the island. I kind of like the idea of St. Patrick's doing that, but nonetheless, you get my point. Uh, everybody has mythologies to explain things. Everybody does. It is human nature to come up with a story of somehow something divine that explains things. And that's not to dismiss religion is real, God is real, Jesus is real, the resurrection is real and all that, but everybody comes up with, with things to tell themselves so they sleep well at night. And as some People move away from religion into politics and begin to treat politics as their religion. Well, then their mythologies become political mythologies, not religious mythologies, but they're still really religious mythologies when you get to it because it's just they're now a political creature, not a religious creature. Instead of worshiping the God of creation, they worship an aspect of creation. And in this case, they worship politics. Instead of getting their meaning from going to church, they get their meaning from going to street protest. Instead of participating in the sacraments of church, they participate in abortion rallies. Instead of giving money to a church, they give money to a political candidate or a political cause of the left. And the mythologies then take on a political character instead of an expressly religious character, but they are still divine in nature. They are ways to explain the world in mythological ways that make these people sleep well at night. So, for example, when you become so political in such a way as to connect Hillary Clinton to the righteousness of your cause, and Hillary Clinton is the chosen one, she is the Messiah of the left, and she loses, you can't accept that she was a flawed human being, a sinner who who uh, she fell short of the glory of God. She she wasn't the chosen one. She wasn't the Messiah. She ran a terrible campaign, surrounded by terrible people who didn't listen to her husband, who was a brilliant politician, know it must be James Comey's letter that stole the election from her. And then no, it must actually be the Russians who did it. You can't accept that Hillary screwed up, screwed up her campaign. It's got to be the Russians. The mythologies that explained Apollo flying across the sky on a chariot moving the sun are the same mythologies that explained the Russians stole the election. And now this time, we have new mythology coming up. According to the elite of the United Nations, nine out of 10 people have sexist views, including 90% of women have sexist views. 90% of women have views negative of women. It must therefore be that the women are sexist. The women are self-hating. And that explains why Elizabeth Warren lost. It can't be she wasn't unlikable because you would never say that a man was unlikable. Never mind that yesterday you said Mike Bloomberg was unlikable. No, it only applies to women. It is a mythology that allows these people to sleep well at night. They have traded politics for religion. And so now politics must 
take on the veneer of some mythology and dogma and, and rite of passage and some belief. And one of the core beliefs now, intrinsic and progressive secularist uh, religion, is that all people are sinners. Unless you embrace the progressive ideology. You know, with Christianity, all people are sinners and they're saved by the grace of God. And you're never not a sinner. You can you you struggle with sin your whole life. With the left, you can always advance into progressivism and completely be forgiven and give up your sins. And the problem is uh, with progressivism, and this is why it becomes so dangerous globally as a phenomenon, and so many uh, millions of people get killed by progressive ideologies, uh, socialist ideologies, is because with progressivism, uh, you can repent, but you're still going to die so long as there are sinners corrupting the gene pool and we have to eliminate the sinners in the West right now what it is is censorship we have to shut them all up and make them go away eventually it always ends badly for the people who disagree with progressivism around the planet in other countries whether it's the Soviet Union or else they would be sent to the gulag or just disappeared same in Cuba as well Uh, all of these people who couldn't get down with the progressive ideology in those those places But it is because these people create for themselves mythologies to sleep well at night, to explain the world around them, because they cannot accept truth. They cannot accept fact that, for example, Hillary Clinton was a terrible politician or Elizabeth Warren was a terrible politician. So they must create the mythology to explain the world that deviates from reality. The entire entire world for thousands of years to explain reality believed that there were gods moving the sun across the sky. And here comes Moses and says, no. Actually, there is a God, but that's not a God. That's just an object in the sky. And they were so upset with them. And and then, you know, we're all special. And so the entire universe revolves around us. And here comes Galileo and says, no, actually, we're on a planet orbiting the sun. And and even then the Christians had had bought into some mythology. No, we can't have that. No. Everybody does that. Every people does that, including progressive activists doing that, telling us that the entire planet is sexist. Even the women hate women. And it's all their fault. It's not actually the fault of the candidates who can't get elected because they're unpleasant, terrible, unlikable people. No, no, you must be sexist to believe that so that I can sleep well at night. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson show. I, you know, I was not, I, I had not scheduled myself to, to go off on that, but it just, it, it, it seems relevant to me looking at the media coverage of the disastrous Elizabeth Warren race. And I, I really am shocked by the lack of self-awareness of people, including at this UN survey, that 90% of women hold views that the United Nations has described are sexist. By the way, do you want to know one of the views that is considered sexist? You're not going to be surprised by it. Uh, You may not think of it off the top of your head, but you won't be surprised. Yeah, uh, abortion rights. Uh, If you're not in favor of abortion rights, you're sexist. A majority of women around the world, and it's not, it is not 80 to 90%, but it is about 60% of women around the world, uh, consider themselves to be pro-life, not pro-abortion. And that's a sexist view, according to the United Nations. If you're a woman who believes that uh, all life is sacred and, and we should not be uh, ripping children limb from limb in the mother's womb, then you're considered a sexist. You, you are bad on women's rights. Uh, and if we've gotten to that point, it's not really sexism. The, the word has lost power. But, you know, I do believe innate in all of us there is, oh, maybe I shouldn't go there, but I am. Um, there is a, a 
an innate belief in complementarianism. <gasps> I know, I know, it's a religious word. I know, I know, it's it's not complementary as in as in I'm giving you a compliment. No, it is in the the, the strengths of one and the weaknesses of one complement the strengths and weaknesses of another. Men and women have different skill sets. Men and women are inherently different. Um, and men and women are different creatures. Uh, they think differently, largely. They process things differently. Uh, they handle life differently. Differently. One is stronger than the other physically. One is stronger than the other, perhaps emotionally. Um, one is is kinder. One is more gentle. One is better at raising children. And this is one of the, the whole devolving crazy aspects of Western society now is that we believe moms and dads are totally interchangeable. No, you talk to a child who does not have a good relationship with their father and you will realize that fathers are important. You talk to a child who does not have a good relationship with their mother, you will realize mothers are important. You talk to someone from a broken home and more often than not, all they want is a whole home, a mom and a dad together. They're not interchangeable. And there are so many studies now, you know, the, 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 this is dangerous ground to tread, I realize here, um, but there are increasing the, we're finding same-sex households, uh, raising children, and increasingly there continues to be data out there that suggest even that is not the same as a heterosexual two-parent nuclear household, uh, that there is greater stability in the two-parent heterosexual nuclear household for kids. Uh, and, and yet the left is just adamant you can't say those things, and any research that says it is wrong and it is a by faith mythological belief. Hello there, it is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. The phone number, if you want to join in with me this morning on the phone, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Do, do, do you want the, do you want the, the bad news now? After down almost a thousand points yesterday, the Dow's down 965 points right now. Joining me to talk about all this out of the gate today, a uh, regular sponsor of this program is Dynamic Money, the CEO of Dynamic Money, and my guest host. And actually, he is my financial advisor and handles all my retirement stuff. It would be my buddy Chris Burns. Good morning to you. Hey, good morning. How are you, sir? I am great. Well, I, I, I'm I'm better knowing you handle my money instead of me handling my money because I think I'd be screwing it up in this market right now. <laughs> well, there's a lot of reactivity, right? Like a lot of people, a lot of clients have called. Um, but even beyond that, a, a lot more folks who just have questions. And I think that overall uncertainty that a lot of individuals listening to the show have right now is the same exact uncertainty that's driving these market losses. It's, it's not necessarily that we have a very clear picture of where this is going. It's really the opposite, and that's why we see these kind of drops, is that as uncertainty is growing, the market responds by fleeing to safety, and then you see these big drops in stocks. That's not abnormal, but it's scary. Well, and, and you're, you're seeing everybody flee to safety, and you're also now seeing the, the yield drop in, in the bond market. Uh, can, can you explain that to people as to what the heck? Because because you go to the Drudge Report or you go to CNBC right now, and it's not just covering the stock market. Uh, they're freaking out about the bond market, too. Yeah, we've never seen bond yields as low, specifically on the 10-year Treasury. The 10-year Treasury is kind of like the benchmark that everyone in the world is looking to uh, for bonds in general and safe money kind of in general. So when you hear about 
treasuries. It usually refers to the 10-year treasury, and that's really kind of this benchmark. Everything from mortgages to just loans in general are watching. And as demand goes up for safe money, so as people are going, okay, where do I take my money? You see them going to gold, which so we see this huge uh, demand for precious metals and increase in the price of gold. But the other place most folks and then a lot of institutional investors, certainly a lot of banks, they're buying those 10-year treasuries. As, as you see demand increase for that, the yield is dropping. So people are freaking out only because watching that yield drop is an indication of how much money is pouring into those treasuries right now, which just goes back to the overall feel of there's a lot of anxiety out there, and a lot of people are trying to figure out where can I go that's safe. Well, it, there is a lot of anxiety, and, and it did almost seem like on Monday now, the the stock market bounce that we got on Monday, the, the largest point gain, not not percentage gain, but, but point gain, may actually sure. have been about all the Democrats consolidating against Bernie Sanders. And then on Wednesday, uh, the gains we saw may very well have been about uh, the end of Bernie Sanders' campaign, the markets calming down about that, and then suddenly the, the fear about the coronavirus strikes again. Yeah, the the dangerous thing here is when you watch the market every day, there's this tendency to go, oh, wow, things are bad right now. But if you wake up the next morning and suddenly it's up three or four percent, you go, oh, well, this must mean that we're recovering and that everything's going to be okay. And that's just not how the market works. But we forget that when we're 10 plus years into the longest bull market in history. So the market literally every day is pricing in all known information. This is a a theory of the market I ascribe to called the efficient market hypothesis, which just means that the market literally is taking in all knowable data every day from millions of different touch points around the world. And as it gets new data, it's responding to it. So like you said, just because it goes up one day, because maybe the market overall says, oh, thank goodness we're not going to have a socialist as president, that's great. That doesn't mean that any of the underlying fundamentals of the coronavirus have changed in that day. And in fact, what we're seeing is that the more information we get, the more we see these drops in the market. It's, it, and honestly, the truth is there's no way right now, I think, that, that we could have a grasp of how far this is going to go. That doesn't need to lead to panic but if we're going to be reactive and look every single day, then that tends to be people's response. They get more and more anxious instead of stepping back and saying, you know what, this was inevitable, right? Like wh- whether this actually goes into a full-blown recession or not, the market's not going to go up forever. So what can I do to make sure that I'm okay in the midst of this? So that leads to the question then, what, what can people do? Yeah, and and this is a really hard answer, um, but I think if we can get our minds around this, it really, it honestly changes the whole trajectory of how you think about investing long term. I was, uh, we were tweeting about this yesterday, and somebody responded, man, you know, it's great to talk about how people with money can invest it and change and everything, but the working person right now with the nest egg is the one that really is getting hosed. And and the response is actually the working person with the nest egg is is the one who more than anyone else needs to hear this right now. And that is this, that even if the market was up 10% right now, like if last week had been a killer week in the market and we had been breaking records again, like we have been last year and everything was great, it'd be the exact same message, which is what is the risk you can actually stick with? Whether the market is tanking and we say there could be a 20 or a 30% loss or it's going up and it's a gain of that level, 
doesn't actually make a difference. The question is, what's the risk you can stick with that will get you to a healthy place in retirement? And here's the most important thing that you won't jump out of when things get bad, because it's not a question of are there going to be downturns? Of course, there are going to be downturns. And when I see headlines right now in financial papers where people are going, this is unprecedented. We can't believe this is happening. My, the first thought in my mind is, why in the world would you say you can't believe this is happening? It's not like any of us actually think the market's going to go up forever. So if we know that's not true, let's plan for it regardless of whether it's up or down, and get to a risk level we can stick with and not be so worried about whatever the headlines might be this week or month or year. Now, let me ask you, just just pivoting away from this a little bit, because we talked about this yesterday, the Federal Reserve cut interest rates a half percentage point, and sure. they, they tend to do this. The president, of course, came out, and, and everything is Jerome Powell's fault when the market isn't doing well, it seems, and right. one of them to cut, so they cut a half point. And I just, when I look at the data and I hear, for example, Southwest Airlines CEO coming out this morning saying that uh, they're worried about aviation travel and tourism. Hotels are starting to come out. Hyatt saying they're cutting, they're revising their estimates for this year and stuff. I, I, I'm i not exactly sure what a half point interest drop will do when people simply, they don't want to travel or leave the house. Yeah, very little. In fact, what we saw was the day that they did this emergency rate cut, which is the first time they've done that since 2008 when we had the financial crisis, um, the market dropped 800 points because the market interpreted that as, wow, if they think it's so bad they need to do an emergency rate cut, then we must really be in bad shape. And the reality is there's very little that traditional fiscal stimulus, for instance, through the Fed can do in this kind of scenario. Somebody in the Wall Street Journal um, said yesterday, I thought this was a great point. They're like, we could cut rates to zero. That doesn't change anything about the spread of this virus. And the reason that the market's dropping is because we're sitting and looking at it and going, well, how long will supply lines be be affected? How long will tourism be affected? How long will oil, for instance, it's losing demand right now because less people are traveling. There's less need for oil. And so the price of oil is dropping. Like, how long is that going to go on? Those ripple effects keep getting bigger the longer this lasts. And, and truly, even though it's great that the government passed an $8 billion stimulus package or is looking at that, it's great that the Fed is cutting rates in terms of doing everything they can do. We need to acknowledge the limits of that. And this just goes back to the bigger issue of politicians need to be super careful about saying, hey, we can make the difference here because it's great when things are good to say, hey, look, the market's up. What a good job we're doing. But when it drops, sometimes there's nothing they can do about it and they don't need to be sitting left on the hook there. Well, yeah, and, and related to all of this, I'm seeing this, this alert on my phone from the Wall Street Journal this morning that uh, up until March now, employers added 273,000 jobs in February. The jobless rate went to 3.5%. The turns out that the underlying fundamentals of the economy still actually do look really good. Yeah, and the hard part about that is that most of those numbers were were recorded. Most of the job numbers were recorded before the coronavirus really became the issue that we see it as now. And so a lot of folks are looking and going, wow, the underlying fundamentals have been really solid, but what are they going to look like the next round of numbers that we see? Right. Like, what's the impact on manufacturing? And and no one knows. It, but I will say this. Even the, 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 the Oxford Economics, for instance, one of the best known research groups on this has looked and said, even in a worst case scenario, they don't see the economic impact of this 
going past this year kind of a thing. So I think, again, people can take a deep breath and go, there's a lot of good underlying growth. But the reality is, because if this keeps going, we have to just kind of own for a minute. Yeah, it's going to impact all of these things that we've seen with forward momentum and felt so good about. So back to me as an individual, what can I do? Well, I can make sure my risk is in line. I can make sure that I can stick with it. And then I have to look at my overall planning and saying, am I in a place where I'm ready for whatever this may lead to? Um, And a lot of folks right now, it's a wake-up call to say, I've never done the planning to be ready for this kind of a thing. Well, now, this is a perfect segue into letting you do some self-promotion because, folks, Chris actually is my wife's and my financial advisor. He actually does handle uh, our retirement for us and and 401k and helping us get a budget. And it's what dynamic money does. Uh, So if people wanted to find out more of how they could get in touch with you, Chris, and with dynamic money, what do they do? Yeah, just go to dynamicmoney.com. There's a button at the top, schedule a free consultation. Um, here's the key. Whether it's with us or with another financial planner, the, the goal is you meet with someone who is fee only. Fee only simply means there's no commissions involved in the deal. You pay a flat fee to go through a planning process. We really built this from our side, our company, for regular people, for middle-class folks who say, I want objective advice about what I can do to make sure that my overall portfolio and my overall financial planning is flexible. That's why it's called dynamic money. Dynamic literally meaning that it can flex and bend and move because life will happen. Whether it's the coronavirus or it's personal sickness or a job loss, something's going to come along. Is your plan flexible enough to adapt to that? Well, and, and I, I can attest for the fact that that Chris and Dynamic Money have, have never charged me a commission. It was just a flat fee. My wife and I went through it before he even became a sponsor to the show. So we didn't do it because he sponsored the show. We actually did it and, and developed a friendship. And the only thing he's ever tried to sell me on are some really awful movie takes. <laughs> <laughs> now some fantastic movie takes. Yeah, and by the way the worst news coming out of yesterday from you was that they're they're postponing the bond film i know yeah they can't get people in the theaters in china and they're expecting that now one more question for you because and again this this is a little bit of self-promotion i, I want to do for you but i know we got a lot of people listening and we got a lot of people who are not just employees but employers they got 401ks and they've got employees who are freaking out right now about their 401ks and i know this is something you guys are willing to do is go in if if an employer wants you to come into their company and try to educate employees on what the deal is with 401ks and, and calm them down. And, and just, if you would talk about that, the, the, with employers having 401ks and pushing people to get into 401ks, and maybe they do need someone to come in and say, here's what you do and don't panic. I just think that's one of the biggest needs that's not met right now. We've moved into a market driven retirement reality where most of us are relying on these 401ks for truly us having a a good retirement long term. But most companies, not all, the vast majority of companies with no bad intentions, just reality, they present a 401k to their employees and kind of say, this is it. Maybe they have half an hour of discussion. You need to fill this out and get it back to us. And that's it. And that's the number one tool that we're relying on for retirement. And so what we found is when we can go into a company We're not even necessarily selling the 401k or anything like that. Just going in to be able to educate and say to employees, here's how you utilize this. Here's how it fits into the bigger picture. Not only do employees get happier, and because of that, they they make better decisions. They put more money in their 401ks. They're in a better place. 
employers, it's a benefit because they see their employees engaging more, and employers are often audited by the government to say, are you doing a good job with your 401k? More participation is good all the way around. So we see this overall benefit both to employees, but also to the employer that they know they're offering something as a real valuable asset to their employees. So I, I just can't think, again, there's, there's not enough folks right now stepping in and saying, how do you truly utilize this tool to the best of your ability? Because it is the primary driver of your retirement. And we love to be able to walk in and help employees understand that. Well, you're certainly helping me with mine and I can't thank you enough. Chris Burns, Dynamic Money. I appreciate you stopping by. Hey, thanks, Eric. I appreciate it. Absolutely. If you want to find out more, seriously, go to dynamicmoney.com. And, and they they are my financial advisor. They were before. All of that stuff. Uh, it's not one of those things where we cut a deal because he's advertising and he's doing it and I'm talking him up. No, he actually really was. Uh, we did get to be friends. And he really has given my wife and me peace of mind with helping us with our retirement, being thoughtful about planning. Where do we go with it, structuring it, but also family budgeting because I'm terrible at budgeting and helping us go through a whole lot life plan for money, not just a retirement plan for money, uh, giving us some peace of mind. In fact, that's the only thing that Dynamic Money sells is peace of mind. Um, they're not You're not going to get charged a commission. It is fee only, uh, and they give you straightforward advice. Essentially, think of them as primary care physicians, where they get your mortgage guy, your finance guy, your investment guy, your 401k guy, all in a room to get, well, on the phone at least, and say, hey, let's make these adjustments for the client, and it uh, gives you some peace of mind. I cannot recommend Dynamic Money enough. I really can't. Uh, my wife and I really we're headed down the Dave Ramsey route and we met with some friends they wanted us to do that and and uh Chris actually had a radio has a radio show on on WSB in Atlanta where I do my evening show and reached out to him to talk he's like this is something we do uh consider us first and we did and I'm so glad we did and he's local it doesn't matter where you are in Georgia or even if you're nationally and you want to use dynamic money they'll they'll come in by FaceTime Skype whatever uh but highly do recommend him and he's just such a great resource here uh and man he's just he's become a dear friend as well. The phone number here is 877-973-7425. Lee and Roswell, welcome to the program. Hey there. How are you doing, Eric? Good. How are you? Good. Um, so I really enjoyed uh, hearing Dynamic Money Update. And recently I was able to convince my wife that earning point zero 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 percent on her savings account was not a good idea and so i bought in on thursday with apple and google Mm -hmm. and it's just so that i can have a little bit of flexibility there what what do you think about that i mean we have a 401k but we're not going to retire in 10 years you know, I'm, I'm glad you said that. So Chris Burns and Dynamic Money, they handle all my retirement and stuff, but I've actually got a buddy of mine, John Lindvig. He's been a friend of mine for years and, and I've always sent some money to him. He, he has his own little, um, financial company and he buys stocks for me and, and I love it. I, I send money to this account and um, this, the, he just buys stock that, that he thinks I'll like. And, and I actually called him last week when Apple was down something like 30 some points. And I said, dude, buy Apple. I, everything, all my electronics are Apple. I love Apple. Um, please buy some Apple. He's like, I was actually about to, I had some money in the account. I, and listen, it's going to go back up. You, you buy a stock like Apple today. That is, let's see, I'm going to look at it right now for both of us, uh, Lee, and, and neither of us are going to. I that it was at a 10% discount 
month on the day we bought it. Right, and and, and so it's down five points right now. It was down the other day over 25, 30 points when I bought it. And so I did. Now, listen, I'm not a stock guy. I'm not going to give people financial advice here. But at the same time, and Lee, thanks for the phone call. I mean, the stocks are going to rebound. Um, put your money in, like Chris says, uh, and, and this was his advice to me. I, I'm 44. I can withstand a lot of risk. I'm not going to retire for 20 some odd years. If that, I'm never going to retire. But the reality is um, it, it, at some point, I'm going to want some of that retirement money out. But I can handle maybe not as much risk as I could at 25, but I certainly can handle more risk than if I was 55. And and so I'm buying stocks, but also putting in mutual funds and putting in my 401k and diversifying a portfolio. But I listen, I have a personal philosophy when it comes to buying stock that now, if I if there's a product or service that I use and I like the company, I'm probably going to go out and buy stock. So I I mean my laptop here, my phone, my watch, my monitors, everything here is Apple. Uh, I like Apple. It's a good stock. It's a good company. So I bought Apple stock. Um, I actually I don't like using Facebook, but I know a lot of the people at Facebook. It's a good company. I bought some Facebook stock. Uh, I use. Um, Bank of America, so I've got Bank of America stock. I fly Delta a lot, so I got Delta stock. Uh, my kids go to McDonald's a lot. I have McDonald's stock. It, it, it's stuff like this. These companies aren't going to go out of business, and I am I'm willing to because I'm a regular user of them. Invest in those companies. I will tell you, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't say this, but I also so I've 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 gone out west so much to give speeches lately, and good lord, the legal of marijuana is legalization of marijuana is insane, and I keep thinking maybe I need to research and start buying these stocks and just invest in the sins of other people. You know, there's all this research out there that that you you invest in so-called sin stocks, and they tend to do very well because everybody's a sinner. So why am I not profiting off the sins of others? But you can't actually buy those. You got to go to Canada to buy that stuff, and I'm not going to do that. But it's just, I mean. Use whatever you use. I mean, if you want to buy individual stocks, do that. But typically, use your 401k and hire somebody like Chris to manage it. Just a, a couple of quick housekeeping notes. Um, we are going to, we have reached out to, there. there's just been a press conference uh, that has wrapped up in uh, nor in. Uh, with the, I, I think it's in Rome. I, I don't want to get the precise location right, but but certainly um, with the folks up in Rome, uh, with the situation at Floyd Medical Center. If you're just tuning in, uh, there is now a confirmed case of coronavirus in Rome. The it is a lady. She went to the hospital at the end of February and had symptoms. They told her it was the flu and sent her home. She came back and the doctors became concerned as her symptoms worsened. Uh, and it was actually, it was the Floyd Medical Center and the uh, healthcare professionals there with Floyd County who demanded the CDC uh, test this lady for coronavirus, and it turns out it was positive. She's in isolation now, but of course, along the way, people came into contact with her. Uh, so Tony McIntosh uh, and our affiliate WRGA is going to be joining us at the top of the hour to bring us up to speed on what's happening with that situation in Rome. Yesterday, the governor held a press conference right at four o'clock saying there were still only those two cases in Rome or two cases in Fulton County. There's now a third case. And again, I am totally, you know, I outline all the stuff I want to talk about and inevitably it never really makes it through and well we'll 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 get to all the stuff i want to talk about hopefully i'll talk fast i can do that but 
I'm going to be a little bit rep- repetitive here. And I'm, by the way, I am happy. It is Friday, and, and we kind of lighten the burden on on you getting through. If there's something you want to talk about that, that I haven't talked about, today's your day to do it. Uh, we'll treat it like Russia's Open Line Friday. It, it is 877-973-7425. Let you steer the conversation a little bit on a Friday. But let me just tell you, why the concern because, you know, it, whenever something happens, whether it's with the stock market or with employment and the economy and politics, uh, with a virus spreading around the world, a conventional wisdom tends to settle. And then after conventional wisdom has settled, contrarians come in and the contrarians will have you know that everything you know is wrong. And the contrarians will insist uh, that things are not the way conventional wisdom says it is. And so right now we've got conventional wisdom that the virus is spreading around the world. And there are problems we need to address. And the contrarians come in now and say, well, really, it's not that bad. It's really not bad. Everybody's panicked and freaked out and people need to calm down and it's just not bad, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You need to know a couple of things about this. And and I'm pulling up the the Johns Hopkins University chart. uh, And and the reason I'm doing it, I want to give you the update here. We've now crossed 100,000 confirmed cases around the world. Uh, And this is notable here to give you a sense of what's going on in the United States. In the United States, we yesterday, uh, two days ago, now let me me break this, actually walk you back. On Monday when I started, there were 98 cases. When we got into Super Tuesday, there were 105 cases. On Wednesday, there were 116 cases. On Thursday, there were 150-some-odd cases. And now in the United States, we have 234 cases. It's it's gone up every day I've been on air. globally right up and now the map just updated there's a new case well this is something uh where is this it's senegal the the map literally just updated there are now four confirmed cases in the african country of senegal so that now updates the map we refreshed the map and what do we have do we have rome by the way if you want to see the map that i'm looking at uh, you can go to text the word data to 33777, text the word data to 33777, and I'll send you back this link immediately to Johns Hopkins so you can see the dashboard. There are 100,645 cases. There are actually 100,646 cases. They haven't put the one in from Floyd County yet. Uh, so 100,646 cases. There are 3,411 of those cases have now been, uh, those people have died. But here's the refreshing news for everyone. 55,753 of the cases are actually recovered. Now, let's do the math on the fatality rate of people who have contracted this so far. So 100, or let's see, 3,411 divided by 100,646 will times 100. So it's a 3.4% fatality rate of the people who have gotten it. Now, ultimately, and this is where the contrarians come in, and the contrarians are right on this. The reality is that far more people have this virus than that we know of. And because so many more people have it than we know of, some people think they have the flu. Some people don't even have symptoms. They're carrying it. They're positive for it, but they don't have any symptoms. Uh, We're probably really, and and particularly given the, the situation in China, there are probably several million people who have this. And if that's the case, the fatality rate is actually very low. And the contrarians are right. And the contrarians are telling you not just don't panic, but you're not even going to get it. Here's the problem. And this is there are two reasons why the healthcare professionals around the world, from the World Health Organization to the CDC to the National Institutes of Health, are concerned. 
And I don't want to belabor the point here, but you do need to understand this. There are two things that they're concerned about. One is that, yes, if it gets the odds of you getting this virus are actually pretty small. The odds of you getting this virus are actually pretty small. Any of you listening to me right now, wherever you are, even in Floyd County, the odds of you getting it are small. But once it gets into your community, the odds of you getting it become pretty good. Once it gets into a community, it spreads very, very fast. We now know for certain, despite what you're reading on on private uh, memes on Instagram and on Facebook and the like, this disease lasts longer in the wild than the flu. The flu dies out um, fairly quickly in the wild. This virus lasts on surfaces way longer than the flu. That means you can pick it up quicker than the flu. You can pick it up more uh, more efficiently than the flu. We also know, though, if you've got kids who are worried about this, and please do, stop what you're doing right now and just listen to this for a minute if you have kids, because your kids are probably getting concerned because your kids are starting to hear about it at school. Uh, If you're like our kids' school, you're starting to get advisories home. They're reteaching kids how to make sure they wash their hands properly, folding their hands in, getting between their fingers, using soap, washing for at least 20 seconds, all of that. Uh, And your kids are starting to say, Mom and Dad, what's going on? Uh, What is this? Uh, Am I going to get it? Am I going to die? All these sorts of things. Here's the reality. Um, There is allegedly possibly one case under the age of 21, and that person had pre-existing severe health problems. Um, It is, um, it is, if you're under 21, you're not going to have a problem. And if you're 21 to 40, The odds of you getting it are small, and if you get it, you're going to have very mild symptoms. In fact, if you're under 21, you may have some very mild symptoms, but the odds are you'll test positive for it and not even know you're sick. Uh, There's only been one person suspected of getting it under the age of 21, and they had pre-existing severe health conditions. Now, let's, let's roll out the timeline. If you're over 60 the odds of you getting it in a community are actually pretty good. Uh, The elderly are way more vulnerable to this than the young. The average death, though, as Brian Kemp pointed this out in his press conference yesterday, the average death is 81. Now, you're thinking, okay, if it's 81, well, that means half the people who are dying are under 81 and half the people dying are over 81. Yeah, but uh, the, the huge cluster is over 81. And as a result of that, it, it, the number is skewing to 81 for morta- for fatality and 60 for actually contracting it. Uh, so you don't the odds of you getting it are actually slim. If it gets into your community among the elderly, it can, it can move very fast. Now, let me give you some numbers here to make you aware of this. Again, this is the United States. 235 cases in the United States, two of them in Fulton County here in Georgia, one of them in Rome, uh, Floyd County here in Georgia. There are 14 deaths in the United States. Eight are fully recovered in the United States. 12 deaths in King County, Washington. One death in Placer County, California and one death in uh, Sonomas Sonoma, uh, County. It's not Sonoma. It's uh, uh, Sonoma, a different county in Washington State. My tongue is not cooperating with me all of a sudden. Of these deaths, all of them are senior citizens. Uh, 
And of the 12 in King County, they're all in nursing homes in King County. There's no middle-aged person or younger who's dying of this disease. There's no reason to panic, but the markets, of course, are panicking. There's a plague ship. Uh, Basically, there's a cruise liner that is parked out of San Francisco. Someone tested positive on the cruise, and now they're, they're flying out testing kits to the people out on this cruise ship, and no one's allowed off the cruise ship. It's like Venice during the Black Plague. We got plague ships parked in parked in harbors now. Uh, But there's there's more. Um, and it is, uh, we got the spread. We got people buying up masks. The CDC has come out again and said, you don't need the masks. The masks aren't going to help you here. And here's Dr. Fauci, the guy who's calming everybody down on this. Dr. Fauci, before we let you go, I just want to ask a very simple question for someone out there tonight. Who's got a cough. Uh, maybe they have a little fever. They haven't been to Wuhan. They've just been living their life. Uh, and they're freaked out. Uh, what should they do? Because obviously you don't want everybody who has the flu or a cough to go into an emergency room right. demanding a test that are, are exactly. not, is not available. So what do they do? Yeah, you know, I think they should just go home and, and just hunker down and recover at home. The chances are overwhelmingly likely that they have either influenza. I hope they got their flu shot, which would make it less likely to have influenza. But the overwhelming likelihood is that it is not coronavirus. What they should do is just go home, hunker down, and recover. That's what you should do right now. Again, because the risk across the country of infection is quite low. If you're in an area where there's community spread, as I said, in Seattle, that elevates it a bit. Dr. Fauci, thank you so much. And I want to emphasize what Dr. Fauci just said about the flu. Oh, and you and I, Sanjay, have talked about this before. It's amazing to me, for all the people who are freaked out about coronavirus, as many as half of Americans do not actually get a flu uh, vaccine. Only 45% right. have a So if you're freaked out about the coronavirus, you can't really do anything about it right now, but you can do something about the flu, and if you haven't gotten a flu shot, you should get one. That way you can sort of distinguish the two. Right. Yeah, and, you know, this was the, the president's getting blown up by telling people to get the flu shot, and, and of course, people are, are uh, rushing along saying, oh, the president's out there saying the flu, get the flu shot, that'll stop the coronavirus. That's not what the president was saying at all. The president was saying exactly what Anderson Cooper and Sanjay Gupta were just saying. If you get the flu vaccine, then they're going to know that when you come in with flu-like symptoms, you don't have the flu. Or if you were one of those rare exceptions that does get the flu, even after you've gotten the flu shot, it's going to be a milder case. Uh, if you get the flu and coronavirus together, it's odds are you're going to die. And I don't mean that to freak anybody out. Um, if you get two of these viruses together it is bad news for you you should get the flu vaccine and it is kind of all the people freaked out about coronavirus and the flu listen if the contrarians are right here uh, the the fatality rate of coronavirus is only going to be slightly higher than the flu, which is a tenth of a percent of the people in the United States will die from the flu um, who get it. And if if as many people get the coronavirus as we believe and they don't express symptoms or what have you, then maybe it is about uh, uh, two tenths of a percent. So the odds are you're going to be okay, particularly if you're under 65. Again, nothing's going to happen to you. You may get sick. You may feel miserable. You may have flu-like symptoms, but you're not going to die more likely than not. Overwhelmingly likely you're not going to. But if you get the flu and this together, it's bad news. And a lot of people have the flu right now. But interestingly enough, interesting, and I actually am fascinated by this. The coverage of this COVID-19 coronavirus has been causing people to wash their hands more frequently. And the washing their hands more frequently and limiting contact with other 
other people is actually causing the flu to go down in this country. We're actually wiping out the flu this year because people are being so cautious and clean. Uh, it may, makes you realize just how dirty our lives are. By the way, Gas South employees in Atlanta are going to start telecommuting and not going to the office together, and the CNN Center has canceled tours uh, of the CNN Center uh, to avoid contact with people. And the president canceled his trip to the CDC this morning to go to Nashville, and now the White House is saying that the trip is back on. The president will be coming to the CDC in Atlanta this afternoon, and um, there, there's nothing official from the White House, but it appears that's the case. And now this from the Babylon Bee. I got to read you another Babylon Bee story today. It is not nearly as good as the, the Elizabeth Warren one yesterday, but still. The CDC is suggesting lots of weird ways to avoid contracting coronavirus, such as washing your hands and not licking doorknobs. These methods sound kind of sciencey, so we were immediately suspicious of them. Sure enough, it seems the best way to avoid getting infected is supernatural. Many have found that if you paint Chick-fil-A sauce on your doorposts, the virus will pass right over you and your household. Research seems to indicate that the angel of coronavirus passes through each town and city every night and looks for the telltale sign that you are one of God's elect, Chick-fil-A sauce. Those with the correct sign of being one of God's people are passed over, while those without the sign are visited and immediately infected. We have no explanation, said one so-called scientist. This must be some kind of miracle from God. The scientist said they've tried other substances such as liberal tears, hand sanitizer, and essential oils, but only Chick-fil-A sauce proved 100% effective at staving off the angel of coronavirus. At publishing time, President Trump had vowed to lead the nation's Christians away from the coronavirus-infected country and into the promised land where there are hardly any diseased people or people at all. It turned out the president was referring to Greenland. <laughs> we still need to invade Greenland. Coming up at the top of the hour, we are going to get an update uh, from Tony McIntosh, who's with our affiliate WRGA up in Rome, uh, about what's happening with the coronavirus situation in Floyd County, Georgia. If you haven't heard the news yet, the governor yesterday at 4 p.m. had a press conference that the only two known coronavirus cases in Georgia were of a father and son in Fulton County. And then overnight, uh, it was discovered a woman in Floyd County has it. We don't know any details as to how she got it. Uh, in fact, she didn't meet testing protocol from the CDC, and originally they didn't even give her the test. Uh, it was the Floyd County health officials who insisted she get the test. So kudos to them for standing up to the residents of, for the residents of Floyd County. And uh, again, I, I when you watch the incompetence of government, and I'm not talking about the Trump administration, I'm talking about the bureaucracy. I mean, for example, Health and Human Services employees uh, got on a plane in San Antonio, Texas, and I think in California, according to whistleblower or to help deal with the people on the planes, and they got on without any protection at all. Uh, it could have all infected themselves. It was the CDC employees who got on the plane appropriately attired to not get infected. And this was, this was not a Trump administration call. This was the government bureaucracy. It is the it is the careerists in government who would be there whether or not Trump was president who were screwing this stuff up. It is not the president. And, and everybody on the left wants to make this because it's a presidential year about the president. They don't like the president. They got to blame the president for all of it. But this is the government itself uh, screwing things up. And I just cannot believe the people who look at this and say, hey, the solution is to for government to run our health care system. The solution is for government to do more. No. Um, kudos to state government standing up for their citizens, even against the federal government, including Brian Kemp here in Georgia, uh, insisting on on 
a Georgia plane lead because they're they're more they're local, they're hands-on, they're competent, and they're doing a good job of trying to mitigate this situation. And we'll get an update. Uh, the other thing I want to tell you about is my buddy Wes Cantrell. He's a state representative. Uh, for, he's also a minister at the uh, First Baptist Church up in Woodstock. Fort God, that place should have roller coasters in the parking lot. It's so massive. It looks like Six Flags. Um, he has legislation that would create a non-binding referendum on whether or not we should keep springing forward and falling back or just spring forward or fall back and stop doing it all together. And the state house, it passed the Senate overwhelmingly, I think unanimously, actually. And the state house has blocked the legislation. Speaker Ralston prefers a different piece of legislation, HB 630. House Bill 630 would create permanent daylight saving time in Georgia. Now, this is problematic because it would take an act of Congress. Uh, the act of Congress is required to do the um, to do permanent daylight saving time. If a state wants to stay on standard time forever, the state can legislature can act itself. Now, the difference between the two, just so you know, we're we're in standard time right now. So the sun is coming up in the mornings as your kids are standing out there for the bus stops. Uh, the sun is coming up sometime after six a.m. Uh, if you when we move to spring forward and on Sunday is spring forward and. The sun will come up after seven. It'll still be somewhat dark at eight o'clock in the morning, uh, but it'll be later in the evening. So the, the sun won't set until around 8 p.m. starting on Sunday. You'll have daylight hours stretched through. You know, I get out my evening show. I'm done at 6 p.m. And so, for example, on uh, on Wednesday when I was in Athens, I left uh, WGAU uh, and I went to Athens uh, I went to the University of Georgia from their their radio station, and it was still sunny. Um, I didn't have my headlights on driving from the station to the Zell Miller Center at UGA. It was dark when I came out, but it was not dark when I went in, uh, and it would have not it would have not been dark until after I finished the speech and left. If we were in, in daylight savings time. So you still get later sun going down in the evening, even in standard time, just not as late. You know, the problem I've always had with daylight saving time is that when you get to the 4th of July, everyone wants to go outside and shoot fireworks. And it's not dark until 10 p.m. But I'm okay doing daylight saving time. The tourism industry is desperate for permanent daylight saving time uh, because the sun will be up in the evening. People can get out. They can shop longer. They can hang out longer. And people like the daylight hours. And I'm totally fine with that. It's just Congress will have to act. If we go to standard time, Congress doesn't have to act. Uh, the state legislature gets to act and do it. Either way, I like West Cantrell's referendum. And I hope that the House will change its mind. And again, uh, if House Bill 630 is passed, then nothing actually changes. They got to wait on Congress to do something. And Congress is not going to act because Congress is much more. You would think Joe Biden and Donald Trump in a moment of unity could get together and say, you know what? Let's stop the time change nonsense. Uh, it, it didn't actually, they did it before World War I and then they stopped it. And after World War II, they brought, during World War II, they brought it back. But it's not something that's been a permanent in this country. We could do away with it again. Some states have gotten away with it and I wish we would get away with it now. Let's just either fall back or spring forward and then stop doing it.
Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. The phone number, you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC. That's 877-973-7425. If you haven't heard the news yet today, it looks like we have our third case of coronavirus in Georgia, this time in Floyd County. And joining me by phone from up there at our affiliate WRGA, Tony McIntosh, he was at the press conference. Tony, welcome. Hi, uh, good morning, Eric. Uh, good to be with you. Well, hey, listen, first, thanks for coming on. And, and second, you you were participating in the press conference there. Well, what's the latest on the situation? Well, our, our news director, David Crowder, was there. I was viewing it. We were carrying it Facebook Live, and I was able to take some notes so that I could uh, have some information for you. But one of the things that uh, we found out uh, today is um, there is a possibility, according to uh, Dr. Uh, Vosio, who is the uh, director of the uh, Department of Public Health in this area, district director, this might actually be a false positive. There is a possibility for that because there, there have been some false positives uh, in recent times. So uh, that's one of the things. The other things that, that we found out is that both hospitals, Redmond Regional and Floyd Medical, are really amping up their preparedness for this and being able to screen uh, patients and being able to just kind of take some extra precautions to make sure there's no more spread of uh, any type of infection. And um, first responders are being uh, better equipped uh, to uh, see and understand, you know, when someone calls 911 and someone's got a respiratory problem, immediately they think possibly this could be a, a COVID-19 case. And so they take all the precautions they can and are able to do a preliminary screening and then contact the uh, uh, healthcare professionals and the ER that they've got a potential uh, uh, patient coming in that might be infected. So uh, there was a lot of good information, still a lot of questions though. And, and that is understandable because um, uh, initially this young lady did not have any of the symptoms, uh, did not have any of the criteria such as traveling abroad uh, that have been in other cases. So it's still a little bit of a mystery here. Well, and you know, I'm glad you said that because that was going to be my next question is, is my understanding from reading the the press reports and the, the press releases is that they didn't think she needed to be tested because she didn't meet any criteria. She had not come into contact with anyone known to have it. She hadn't been abroad, uh, which those are the big factors here. And now we've got this, but yet it may be a false positive, which I, I actually didn't realize that they were getting these false positives tests. So I, I guess good for them to be uh, cautious, but at the same time, also really good of the uh, Floyd Medical Center and the, the healthcare staff in Floyd County for kind of pushing the CDC forward on this. Yeah, there, there's a lot of misinformation out there about that, that she was turned away three times and, and all this. But actually, when she returned back to the hospital on Tuesday, uh, the ER doctor uh, said, you know, something's just not right here we're going to isolate you. We're going to uh, put you, uh, we're going to meet you in the hospital. At that time, they contacted the Department of Public Health. They ran the test. They sent it. And so they were very proactive in that. And they, because of then, she still did not have any symptoms uh, or meet the criteria of testing. But yet, you know, a gut feeling there from a, a very um, proactive ER doctor possibly could have saved a, a lot more grief uh, down the line. Now, the mystery is, where did this, if it is positive, where did it come from? How did she contract it? And are there others out there? So 
this whole virus, this whole flu type virus, coronavirus, is still a, a major mystery. And um, uh, we're still trying to figure out again. Uh, the patient didn't travel outside the country, but uh, one thing that we didn't know first that they uh, that she had returned back from a trip to Washington D.C. I don't know if there's any kind of a, a connection on that, or she could have come in contact with someone up there. But I just was handed this by our news director David Crowder, uh, who just returned back and just got that information right there. So huh. that may be something else into play. So that's kind of breaking news right there. Well, there you go. Well, listen, Tony, thank you very much for stopping by and giving us an update on this. And then we'll keep our eye on the story. I, I don't know if you've seen it, but uh, Governor Kemp has put out a, a tweet saying, uh, just reiterating what you said, that the CDC has not actually confirmed the results of the patient. And Georgia Department right. of Public Health is asking them to expedite the processing. Yeah. And, and until that uh, confirmation comes back, that, that second test, we're still sitting here. It may happen. It may not. It may be a case. It may not be a case. So we're not really sure yet. All right. Tony, thank you very much for stopping by from WRGA up in Rome. Our affiliate there really appreciate the work they're doing, staying on top of the story. Uh, their website, by the way, if you want to get more news, you can go to their website, find out they're keeping up on this. It is WRGANews.com. Look at that. Who is that guy's face at the top of the website right now? Why? That guy looks like he's got a face for radio. Um, WRGANews.com is it. Um, They've got that story there. They're keeping it up to date. Uh, there and again, Governor Kemp has pushed out this tweet. Uh, CDC hasn't confirmed COVID nineteen test results for the patient in Floyd County. Department of Health has asked CDC to expedite processing for an official determination to prevent misinformation. We encourage Georgians to rely on the CDC, the Department of Public Health, and the Governor's Office for guidance. We will continue to update this situation regularly. So we do not have a confirmed case in Rome. That is why the update uh, for the uh, Johns Hopkins website has not actually changed now. Um, We do not have a confirmed case yet in uh, Floyd County. In the Rome area, they are testing it. They've done a preliminary test, which was positive, but it could be a false positive. And uh, they're they're doing that. Now, if you have any questions for me here about anything today, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Let me stay on the North Georgia situation. Um, in, in the Rome and the, the Habersham County areas up there, in the, in the Northeast and the Northwest parts of the state, those two congressional seats are open. And in the northeast corner of the state, the congressional district is the ninth congressional district. And in the northwest corner of the state, it's the 14th. Uh, the 14th congressional district out of the Floyd County area is uh, Tom Graves. And in the northeast corner of the state, it is Doug Collins. And here are the people who have registered. Today is the last day for qualifying uh, for uh, elections in Georgia. If you want to be on the ballot in Georgia... This is the last day to do it. Let me also pull in the 7th Congressional District. The 7th Congressional District is the Gwinnett County, part of Forsyth County area. Uh, Let me read you here. You got Renee Unterman, uh, Mark Gonsalves, uh, Carolyn Bordeaux is going to be a Democrat, Rich McCormick, Republican, uh, Renee Unterman and Mark Gonsalves, both Republicans, Zachary Kinnamore, Republican, Brenda Lopez, Romer, Democrat, Dan Wilson, Republican, Eugene Eugene Yu, Republican, Uh, Rashid Malik, Democrat, and Lynn Homrich, Republican. 
In the 9th Congressional District, this is Doug Collins. He's vacating it to run for the Senate. Uh, you've got Michael Bogus, uh, Kevin Tanner, Matt Gertler, Maria Strickland, Andrew Clyde, Paul Brown, and Ethan Underwood. Those are the Republicans. Devin Pandy is the one Democrat. That district is like R plus 25. The Democrat does not have a shot. And then uh, the Tom Graves district is an R plus 20 district, I believe. Again, the Democrats don't have a shot there. And the, the one Democrat is qualified for that. The rest are Republicans. You've got John Barge, Ben Bullock, Kevin Cook, Clayton Fuller, John Cohen, Bill Hembree, Andy Gunther, Matt uh, Lawridge and Marjorie Green are the Republicans, and Kevin Van Osdale, uh, Osdale is, he's the one Democrat in that race. Whoever wins the Republican primary in the 9th and the 14th is going to be the member of Congress, barring un- unforeseen issues, because that district is so heavily, so heavily um, Republican, both of them. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see. Now, let, let me get to the phones here. 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Wilton and Macon, you're going to be next. Very well. Hi there. Hey, Eric. I want to tell you real quick. A couple of days ago, you brought up a story, covered it pretty extensively about local journalism. And basically, to paraphrase, the death of local journalism, correct? Yes. Okay, well, I I want to submit to you that I think it's a little something else. Okay. And uh, to give you an example, I, I think it's probably a little bit of laziness, and I certainly don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but let me tell you why. I did about a 30-second Google search, and I found out that there's well over 300 incorporated municipalities in the state of Georgia. Mm-hmm. Macon, our town, is number 324 when it comes to the amount of crime. Now, I, to me, if you're an investigative journalist, that could probably cover two weeks of a daily expose as to why that's the case, or what can be done, or what are we doing to correct it. And I just think that now, you know, like you said in your segment, your local journalism, local news is always going to be there. But I would think that, you know, we would like to to know exactly what's going on. I mean, like a hard-hitting thing, like 60 Minutes used to be before it got to right. the way it is now. You know, really do some, some hard-hitting work and ask the hard questions. You know, why are, we, why are we this way? What is going on? What's being done to correct it? You know, instead of, you know, getting national stories, that by the time they come out, I read them 24 hours previously online. Right. Yes. Well, you part of the problem there is is the budgeting. So, you know, the the local newspaper where we are uh, had used to have a very large local staff that covered sports, local crime, local politics around the, the middle Georgia area. They are down to a real handful of people. In fact, I was looking the other day uh, for someone to refer a story to and uh, didn't recognize any of the names. And I, I know you got Joe Kovacs, I think, at the Macon Telegraph, and Liz Fabian is there, and uh, I, she's doing something with Collaborative School of Journalism. And there are a lot of people, you know, for those of you, this is this is somewhat of an esoteric conversation. Wilton, thanks very much for the phone call on this, but if, Macon, the Mercer University uh, is my alma mater. They're in middle Georgia, brilliant university, um, wonderful people there. And they've got this collaborative center for journalism and they've partnered with the local newspaper. And there are a whole lot of people who are thinking, oh, let Mercer do more. And this is part of the problem uh, in college towns. And this this goes beyond Mercer, whether it's Barry up in Rome or it's uh, middle Georgia. What is it? Uh, college. Georgia College and State University in Milledgeville, whether it's uh, Georgia Southern in Statesboro, whether it is um, Mercer in Macon or Wesleyan or or Middle Georgia, um, 
or whether it's Valdosta State and Valdosta or, or you name it. What in what inevitably happens is the colleges and universities become such leaders and economic engines in the community. Let, let me just take Mercer and Macon because that's what I'm familiar with. Um, but you have conversations with people who are up at Barry and Rome or or wherever. You hear the same thing. Uh, it is these colleges and universities that become economic drivers because a lot of people will go to those colleges and universities, get a good education, and stay in the local community. For example, if you want a dentist, uh, dentists are a dime a dozen in Augusta. You know why uh, dentists are a dime a dozen in Augusta? Because they got the, the the medical college in Augusta. It used to be the Medical College of Georgia, and they changed the name, which was stupid. But nonetheless, um, you go over there. A buddy of mine is over there. He's like a hey, dentist on every quarter. We, we get out of school, and we like Augusta, and we stay. Same in Macon with the law school. Good Lord, you want a lawyer? Macon has a lawyer on every quarter with the law school in Macon, a supply and demand. I don't know how many of these lawyers in Macon stay in business. There are so many lawyers in Macon, uh, and a lot of them have diverse diversified now and you got people they own real estate and whatnot and their day job is technically a lawyer there are lawyers everywhere in Macon because the Mercer Law School you go to law school you stay I mean that's what I did I went to law school I didn't intend to stay but I did and now I don't even practice law anymore and I'm still paying on my student loans but they become economic engines and economic drivers and then the local communities begin to rely on them for everything like economic development in the middle Georgia area you come to Macon and you go to the downtown Macon area Mercer University in Macon is is not single-handedly but largely responsible for a revitalization in in middle Georgia uh, building the football stadium, revitalizing the area around Mercer that when I was there, you'd go out at night and be serenaded by gunshots. And to some degree, you still are in parts of it, but not nearly as bad. Uh, you go downtown and Mercer bought, for example, the Capricorn Records to you and they, they renovated it. They own Lost downtown. They have business downtown on and on. Um, it's just, it, it's, it's incredible what they've done. And so you get to this point where the collapse of local newspapers and suddenly you're like, hey, why don't you all take that too and do that too? Well, at some point, you know, all these colleges, universities, and all these college towns around the state, whether it's UGA in Athens or Barry in Rome or Georgia Southern in Statesboro or Mercer in Macon, they're like, you know, we're kind of doing everything right now. Why don't you all do some of this too? And I, I keep hearing rumors, for example, in, in, in my area that there are a group of business owners who want to get together and start a nonprofit and, and start a news, newspaper or buy the current newspaper from McClatchy that owns it. I don't know whether that'll happen or not, but there is this, this when a university, when, when a business, and it doesn't have to be a university, it can be a business. If you've got a big economic driver in your community, starts doing a lot for the community, economic revitalization in communities and the like, then suddenly uh, the you start saying, hey, why don't you all do this as well? At some point, the economic driver in the community can only do so much to drive the economy and other people have to start doing some of the heavy lifting as well and and people don't want to uh, they want to be subsidized by that economic driver and that economic driver ultimately only has a limited pot of funds like anyone else which reminds me speaking of education i want to actually get out of politics per se when we come back and talk about the story in the atlantic about purdue university uh, all of us here should pay attention to this and, and there is a political tie-in I want to get into this story from Purdue University, and we'll get there. This is just a short segment here, and, and I want to spend a few minutes on that story. And, and there is actually some other Georgia news. On, on the Leffler uh, College race, the president canceled his trip to Atlanta instead to go visit tornadoes in Nashville. Uh, we now know 
that the real reason the trip was canceled to the CDC is that there was a report that someone at the CDC may have contracted coronavirus. Uh, it turns out that it was a false alarm. And so now the president will be coming to Atlanta. If those of you who aren't in the Atlanta area and you're headed to Atlanta, the president's expected to land at about 3.20 p.m. today in Atlanta. He is totally going to screw up Friday afternoon traffic in Atlanta. Uh, I used to rail on Barack Obama for coming into Atlanta during rush hour, and I got to do the same with President Trump to stay honest. Come into the city when we're not trying to get home on a Friday afternoon, please. Uh, The whole thing just, ah, in any event. um, One of the interesting things here is, you know, the president is not taking a public position in the Doug Collins, Kelly Leffler race, except he kind of is uh, today. The word has come out that the president is going to fly Kelly Leffler and her husband to his uh, place in Palm Beach at Mar-a-Lago, and he's going to present them at a donor meeting as his special guest. Uh, So he's essentially taking Kelly Leffler uh, to hang out with his donors at Mar-a-Lago tonight, which is rather a big deal. It's not an endorsement, but it kind of is. Uh, And, you know, he tried to get Doug Collins to go to the uh, intelligence director's position, the the director of national intelligence. Collins refused and said he was running for the Senate. He didn't want the job. Uh, He could have been confirmed, but, you know, this is part of the problem with this is uh, if he's confirmed and the president loses in November, Collins is at a job by January. And I am told quite reliably that there were a couple of people in the White House who took Collins' uh, unwillingness to take that job as a, as a vote of no confidence when it comes to the president's reelection. Now, they shouldn't have done that because that wasn't Collins' intention. Uh, but there you have it. That's the way some of them took it. Uh, and now the president taking Kelly Leffler with him to Florida to hang out with the donors down in Florida. I do want to play a little bit of the president here. He was at a roundtable discussion last night. And one of the things, if you meet the president, you, he hates to shake hands. Uh, this president is a total germaphobe. I hung out with him in his office before he was elected president one time, and he, he kept hand sanitizer all over the place. He does not like to shake hands. Uh, this is the president from the Fox News roundtable last night. Um, this one goes back to coronavirus in the beginning. Uh, you are a self-proclaimed germaphobe. Uh, in the campaign, before the campaign, you didn't like to shake hands. Uh, you changed that. Uh, what did doctors... Well, I'm not thrilled. Yeah, yeah, you're not thrilled. <laughs> what did doctors tell you? Have you changed anything in the way that you operate? So, yeah, it's a great question, because I've always felt, you know, I don't know, from the time I was a young guy, I, you know, I've always felt the concept wasn't good. Then you'd read a lot of medical reports, it's not good now, especially they're saying, by the way, if there was ever a time that you could convince people not to shake hands, this could be it. Okay, this could be so it. Do an elbow but you know what I did? You know what I did? Uh, I really... I love the people of this country. You can't be a politician and shake hands. People come out, when I leave, I'll be shaking hands with people. They want to shake your hand. They want to say hello. They want to hug you. They want to kiss you. I don't care. It doesn't matter. You have to do that. If I went around, no, I don't shake hands. Can you imagine I'm going to be with a group of people and they like Trump and they come up, sir, thank you very much. I don't shake hands. It's over. I don't care how nicely you say it. The bottom line is I shake anybody's hand now. I'm proud of it. They're people that I love. They're people that I want to take care of. <laughs> but he wants to wash his hands afterwards. It actually is very funny. And you know, if you go to the White House to meet with the president and you cough in his presence, the meeting is done. It is done. You do not cough in the presence of the president of the United States. He He's a germaphobe. Uh, and... <laughs> 
Which is why, by the way, you had this guy who told a funny story the other day. The guy came up to him and gave him a hug and had the flu. And the president immediately walks away and starts washing his hands and scrubbing. Well, because he's a germaphobe and he's kept himself from getting the flu. He clearly was under the weather a few weeks ago. But, man... <laughs> just it's funny to hear him actually acknowledge it and tell stories like that uh he is kind of funny when it comes to that sort of stuff the phone number here is 877-97-ERIC 877-973-7425 when rick perry was governor of texas uh eric perry and his wife anita are good friends of mine uh dearly love them and when he was governor of texas he was the longest serving governor in Texas history and by the end of his tenure had been able to largely get most uh, appointed positions to be his people. But there were some of those positions because of the way they were structured that resisted his influence and, and resisted his picks. And one of those was the university system in Texas that, that had a lot of lifelong careerists and, and it was way more political than most of the entities uh, that that involve politics. But the governor wanted a $10,000 a year college degree from state universities in Texas, and people lost their minds over it. Bureaucrats and educators flipped out at the idea that Texas could offer a degree that was $10,000. And Perry's concern was that college tuition has gone up way more than the cost of inflation. And in so doing, uh, it, they have priced a lot of uh, poor and middle-class kids out of college unless those kids get uh, debilitating, long-term debilitating financial uh, assistance. And just full disclosure here, so I went to Mercer University in Macon. I actually had a scholarship to go to Duke, and my mom wanted me to go check out Mercer because at the time it was allegedly Baptist. And I did, and I got a, a really good deal at Mercer as well. In fact, I got the largest academic scholarship for my graduating high school class. I uh, got the largest academic scholarship uh, in my school period for, for, for since, since anyone had paid attention to it uh, for either Duke or Mercer. And I went up, I went up and looked at Duke, and I just didn't like it. I mean, I love Duke. Don't get me wrong. It's a beautiful area. But man, the people, there was a bunch of Yankees who wanted me to know that I needed them. They didn't need me. They were just rude and, and inconsiderate. And at Mercer, the people were just fantastic. I loved the people, um, the just warm and friendly people. And I wound up going to Mercer. And, and to some degree, I regretted it because you, up until they beat Duke, ironically, in the NCAA, uh, March Madness, uh, people were like, well, what is this place? Uh, you, you tell people you went to Duke, everybody knows Duke. And I got a lot of friends who went to Duke. But I went to Mercer, and, and I, I was actively involved on campus. I was the chief justice of the university. I was the parliamentarian of the student government. Um, it, it was it was a lot of fun. I, I I had a lot of fun on campus, and then went to law school at Mercer. And I am still, though I had scholarships for undergrad, I did not for law school. And I had put everything on student loans. And law schools around this country, I don't know if you realize it or not, and some people sneak and get away with it. It's not really enforced, I guess. But they don't want you to have a job your first year in law school. Uh, they actively discourage you from having one. And so I had to get loans enough to not just uh, be in class and go to class, but also to, to, to live 
because my parents, they helped me in undergrad with, with uh, to the extent that I didn't have scholarship funds and I didn't have a scholarship in law school. Mercer was literally the only place I applied to go to law school. I was working for Congressman Chambliss at the time. He was going to run for the Senate. I was on his campaign staff. I didn't want to leave. Mercer was the only, if I didn't go to Mercer for law school, I wasn't going to go to law school. And they let me in. I got no scholarship. And I am to this day, I have not practiced law since 2006. I still pay $475 a month uh, on my law school loans and will do so for another 13 years. Yeah. Uh, yeah, great value there. Great, great life choice on my part. This is why Chris Burns and Dynamic Money are actually my financial people. Um, the cost of education in this country and in the undergrad and, and the graduate level is ridiculous. And there's this story in The Atlantic about Mitch Daniels. Mitch Daniels was the director of Office of Management and Budget. If you know Russ Vogt, Russ Vogt, dear friend of mine, is the is President Trump's director of Office of Management and Budget. He's technically the acting director because Mick Mulvaney is now the White House chief of staff. Um, but Russ is the acting director of OMB. And prior to his tenure, Mitch Daniels used to be there at the beginning of George W. Bush's administration. Mitch Daniels is a noted tightwad. Mitch Daniels, actually, uh, when he produced President Bush's first budget, uh, released the budget and made the government bureaucrats come to his office to pick it up. This tells you the sort of guy Mitch Daniels is. Uh, he, he made people come to his office to get the budget and played you can't always get what you want over the loudspeakers as people were coming into the White House to pick up their copies of the budget on repeat. Daniels left uh, the Bush administration and ran for governor of Indiana and won. Uh, and won overwhelmingly. He was supremely popular. He won his reelection in a landslide. And then after his reelection, uh, served his term and then became the, uh, the president of Purdue University, a state school, the ag school in Indiana. And Mitch Daniels set about freezing tuition. Now, you need a, a, another story about Mitch Daniels just so you get an idea of how much of a tightwad he is. Mitch Daniels loves to play golf. And Mitch Daniels plays golf using his gardening gloves because he didn't want to pay the three bucks to get a golf glove that he would only use to play golf. So he uses his gardening glove to play golf. I, I, I do believe actually someone has finally bought him a golf glove. I need to go play golf. I'm terrible at it, but man, I love to hit golf balls and drink beer. Uh, <laughs> um, so Daniels is now in charge of Purdue university and he has frozen tuition to uh, $9,992. Now, here's the thing. Let me. This, this is uh, Andrew Ferguson is one of the greatest writers of the 21st century. And let me read you the beginning of the story with, with, uh, with Mitch Daniels. I'll tell you a funny story, said Mitch Daniels, the president of Purdue University. It was the day before the first home football game of the season. He was sitting in his corner office overlooking the postcard perfect quad. So the cost of a year of undergrad college at Purdue University, tuition and fees, is $9,992. I'm proud of that number. One day I was looking at one of those college guys and it said tuition and fees, $10,002. I called up our people and said, look at here, it's a mistake. You got the wrong number. And they said, it's not a mistake. I said, yes, it is. Believe me, I know I'm the president of the university. And they went back and they checked and they said, no, that's the right figure. And it just bugged me to death. 
Does Walmart have a special and price it at $10, two cents? I found out what happened. There's a second installment on a pre-existing gym fee that got tacked on $10 plus $9,902 equals $10,002. Next time I'm at the gym, I asked the guy who runs it, how's it going in here? He's, he said, membership's up. We're doing well, making a little profit. And I thought, okay, that's all I needed to know. At the next meeting of the board of trustees, they repealed that fee. So we're back to $9,992, he said. There was both self-deprecation and a sense of triumph in his chuckle. I don't know why it bugged me so much, but he did. That is Mitch Daniels. Uh, here are the consequences. Um, only when seen against the inflationary helix of American higher education can the singularity of Mitch Daniels' achievement be fully appreciated. The college affordability crisis has become a staple of academic chin pulls, news stories, congressional hearings, and popular books written in tones of alarm and commiseration. From 2007 to 2017, the average annual cost of a degree at a four-year public university like Purdue rose from about $15,000 to more than $19,000, a jump of 28% after taking inflation into account. Only health care rivals higher education as an economic sector so consumed by rational inefficiencies and runaway prices. The consequences are plain. Students and their parents have acquired debt totaling more than $1.5 trillion, more than all credit card debt held in the United States and sufficiently large, according to the Federal Reserve, to be a drag on the economy. Roughly 70% of college students take out loans to finance their education. The average undergraduate leaves school with more than 25 $5,000 in debt. At Purdue, by contrast, nearly 60% of undergrads leave school without any debt at all. So they froze tuition at $9,992. They increased enrollment. In increasing enrollment, they were able to boost revenue. In boosting revenue, they lowered class size. They were then able to dedicate enough uh, to research where they're able to patent a lot of their research and pull in revenue from research. They expanded to an international program and, and an out-of-state program that does charge more. Uh, and even those, they're not breaking the budget on. Um, it, it's, it's, it's an impressive thing that he's done. And I, I, I got a, got a suggestion. Uh, and I, I wonder if it is possible that we should be considering these things in academic institutions here. Now, let's see, um, according, I'm looking at, uh, the, I'm looking at the university of Georgia. I'm looking at their website, their admissions website. Uh, tuition and fees at the University of Georgia is $12,080. Add in a residence hall fee, that's $6,278. Add in a seven-day meal plan, that's $4,036. Add in estimated book supplies and living expenses, that's $5,056. So the total cost estimate is $27,450. If you're a non-resident, uh, the tuition and fees is $31,120. So in-state, $12,080. Out-of-state, $31,120. That's not bad. Um, let's see what it, uh, Purdue University costs. Let, let's see if I can do this Googling on the fly. What, what does it have to say? Tuition and fees at Purdue University. 
Now you've got $9,925. See, ching. at Purdue if you're in-state. If you're out-of-state, it's $28,794. So again, let's compare. Residents in Georgia, $12,080. In Purdue, it's $9,922. If you're non-resident in Georgia, it's $31,120. And at Purdue, it is $28,794. Now, room and board at Purdue is considered a 10,030. Room and board is also considered meals and everything else. So at Georgia, they bifurcate it. Uh, it is roughly the same. And so a ten, uh, it, the total expense at Purdue for meals and residence hall and tuition and fees is $20,022. At University of Georgia, it is for out of state residents. Um, it is twenty two thousand dollars. So two thousand dollars more. But then here's the catch. Here's the catch. Here's the catch. Purdue has also struck book deals with Amazon.com and others to keep the costs super low. So if you go to Purdue, your books and supplies are going to be a thousand dollars. On average, if you go to the University of Georgia, your books and supplies and living expenses will be $5,000. At Purdue, your living expenses and stuff are, are, are baked into it. So your total, just to give you a comparison between UGA and Purdue, at Purdue, your total estimated living expenses are going to be $22,782. At the University of Georgia, $27,450. That's really not that bad, but I do wonder if we can do better. You've got um, um, you've got private institutions as well that because they can't depend on taxpayer dollars, the cost of tuition is even more than that. Uh, let, let me look at Mercer. Mercer's financial aid here. I'm doing this on the fly as I go through. Uh, and let's do Georgia Tech as well. Georgia Tech tuition costs. Uh, and my point of doing this is to note that we still have a problem here in Georgia and elsewhere around the country with outrageous costs for academic institutions. And there's a prestige factor as well. Now let's do Mercer. Uh, My goodness gracious, Uh, tuition and fees for Mercer, uh, the 2006-2017 year total, $50,282. Compare that to UGA, which is $27,550. And now there's Georgia Tech. The cost of tuition at Georgia Tech for a resident is $10,258, slightly higher than Purdue, not bad. Uh, But the total cost for two semesters is $28,832, and that's the freshman cost. For everyone else, uh, non-freshman and up, it's $31,572. So Purdue still does a very good job. Now, certainly you can go to Georgia Southern. You can go to Middle Georgia State. You can go to Georgia College and State University. You don't have to go to Georgia Tech, and you don't have to go to uh, the University of Georgia. But I still think you look at what Purdue is doing under Mitch Daniels, and a situation that you have is – they're doing everything they can to keep costs down for students. And that's not necessarily the case at public and private universities in Georgia. They're, they're, the fees, the room and board, everything else is more expensive. And I wonder 
if there's a way for Brian Kemp to use this issue politically, uh, because, you know, conservative populists tend to do better than progressives, uh, than, than left-wing populists, because left-wing populists want to use your money for all sorts of stuff, and right-wing populists tend to just want to let you use your money for stuff and, and get the state out of the way. And I suspect that there's an angle that Governor Kemp could do to try to lower costs in, in, in Georgia. But there's also a lesson here I think that, that private schools are going to have to deal with. Listen, as the cost of schooling goes up and up and up and up and up, I think private schools and even my dear alma mater like Mercer, I think long term, there are going to be financial consequences for the continued escalation of tuition. Now, Mercer does a very good job of trying not to raise tuition every year. There are some institutions, though, that are pricing themselves on the market. And as it becomes a bigger and bigger burden and more and more people have to rely on state schools, I do have to wonder, in all honesty, I, I really do have to wonder if there is a an angle for a conservative populist, a guy like Brian Kemp, to make the cost of tuition a big deal and wage war on the bureaucracy as a way. When you look at the underlying costs of Georgia and Georgia Tech at the baseline tuition rate, it's really not that bad. It's all the fees and everything else that are included. But you make, you make that case that, no, we're not going to forgive your student loans and stuff like that. Um, maybe, just maybe, there's a way to deal with the situation and maybe, just maybe, there is a way for the state of Georgia and the governor to find an angle on an issue that no one's thought of and make this part of his reelection bid, if not actually inspire the legislature to try to come up with a way to make college even more affordable in Georgia than it already is. And all of this to be said, we've got a really good system here in Georgia, but there are always rooms for improvement. So I'm a Star Wars fan. I grew up loving Star Wars. I mean, man, I, I was I was five when they re-released. I guess Star Wars. They it become popular. Well, I was four. Or five. It was the Noah when it first came out. I it was the first movie, and I have no memory of it. But it was the first movie I ever saw in a theater. My parents took me when I was real little. And then when it was re-released as as Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, uh, I guess in '79, I would have been three, four years old. And then uh, Empire Strikes Back came out, and I remember that my actual first distinct movie memory was, I think, Empire Strikes Back, and uh, and then Return of the Jedi. I loved it, and Disney has bought Lucas Films, and Kathleen Kennedy has just ruined it. Uh, she seems to ruin everything she touches. And, and so if you've seen, well, you know, a spoiler alert here, um, the, 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 the rise of Skywalker or whatever, the, the last, uh, star Wars movie turns out that the, the, the now lead character, her granddaddy is emperor Palpatine. And now there's a book that's come out on the star Wars universe. And it suggests that granddaddy was actually a clone of the emperor, which is just making everybody. It's so stupid. They've just ruined star. Wars. And now there's research out that thanks to the damage done by people like Kathleen Kennedy and others at Disney to Star Wars, um, Disney may be putting a lot of Star Wars back on the shelf because uh, the fan base can't grow. But then you look at what somebody like John Favreau has done with The Mandalorian, which if you've got Disney, if you don't have Disney Plus, I, I actually, the only thing I've ever seen on Disney Plus is The Mandalorian. And I will keep my subscription. My kids actually like some of the content on Disney Plus, but I loved The Mandalorian. It was such a good show. Uh, really, really well done. And I, I like it tremendously. I'm ready for the next season to come out. Uh, the, I, I think they should have done more episodes for a first season. I think they did eight episodes, and and more are coming here. 
uh, in about four months, and I can't wait four or five months. I really want him to come back. But he has totally generated a new level of fandom for Star Wars in a way that J.J. Abrams and Rian Johnson and Kathleen Kennedy could not with the movies. I mean, Rian Johnson and that Last Jedi movie were just, it was awful. And I realize there are people who like it. And listen, I mean, there are people who want to get the coronavirus. Uh, there are idiots galore everywhere. And oh, I love the movie. As I told you earlier, there are always contrarians. The fact is, you can tell by the box office, it stunk. And it, it ruined the reception for the last movie, which turned out to be a better movie than The Last Jedi, even if it wasn't great. So there you have it. Now, uh, all that being said, I will return here on Monday, and I'm sure we will have some grand and glorious updates on the coronavirus then. You guys have a great weekend. Try not to get the coronavirus. I'll see you on Monday. Bye.